Dr. Carl Haas was the popular host of nationally syndicated Adventures in Good Music. You can learn more about this series on our web blog, www.classicalmusic.network. And now, here is another episode of these radio broadcasts. Now, I'm sure that most of you by now know what a toccata is. Toccata comes from the Italian word toccare, which means to touch. And you touch the keyboard all over. It's a showpiece, quite frankly. The opposite would be sonata, um, coming from sonare, to sound. It's more a question of sound rather than display. So this was the original difference in the meaning. The Toccata by Bouchard was written in Paris, and admittedly for his wife and himself. There is a basic figure, which we call in the music language, ostinato. It recurs, it stays the same all the way through, and upon that figure, two themes grow, exposed one by one, and then simultaneously at the end of the piece, if you want to listen for that particular technique which Bouchard uses here. So here is the flashy, modern, yet surely not modern in the most modern sense, Toccata by Bouchard, played once again by the composer and his wife, two pianos.
that's a very interesting piece both of these are, and any of you two piano teams in the audience ought to avail yourselves of them. This was the Toccata by Bouchard. Sounds a little bit like Ravel, the influence is undeniable, but it's a refreshing addition to the two piano literature. This was played by René Morisset, Mrs. Bouchard, and the composer Victor Bouchard. It occurs to me that I have not consciously made any difference between Canadian artists of English extraction or Canadian artists of French extraction. I have simply chosen what I felt would be of most interest from a standpoint of programming. So, having said that, I must introduce to you another French-Canadian couple. I suppose that's why I suddenly become aware of it. In the entire literature of duets, duos from, let us say, song, repertoire, or from opera, there are many examples, uh, examples of great pathos. I need only remind you of duets from, let us say, Faust, or from any of the Verdi operas that are so famous for their ensemble writing. But perhaps one of the really moving duos is not generally known as an excerpt unless the entire opera is heard. And I am referring to Manon by Jules Massenet. As you know, Puccini wrote an opera on the same subject matter. He called it Manon Lesco. Manon is Massenet. And in the first act, there is a very moving duet between the two main characters, Manon and Des Grieux. This duet, I'd like to have you listen to now as we hear it performed from a truly outstanding team, husband and wife, Pierrette Alari, soprano, and Leopold Simono, tenor. Je sais votre nom 
the great love duets. This from the first act of Manon by Massenet, sung by Pierrette Alary and Leopold Simoneau of Canada. This is one of the truly great popular French operas and truly one of the most characteristic. And what takes place here, if I may digress from the subject matter of this program for a moment, what takes place here in the first act is perhaps rather significant because it sets the stage for the entire opera. Manon arrives by coach and is uh, promptly impressed upon, or at least he tries to impress upon her, by the minister of France. But she rebuffs him. She isn't interested in men because she has decided to enter a convent. But she sees three pretty young women, prettily dressed, and this sets her reflecting on the sadness of rejecting life and love, and then her reverie is interrupted by the arrival of the young Chevalier de Grieux, and he is struck by her beauty, and she's attracted to him, and Manon impetuously suggests to de Grieux that they use the coach to go to Paris together. That's the duet, and that's the end of the first act. But we're talking about Canadian artists and Canadian music, and we've gotten off the subject here for a moment. I hope you don't mind. Let me remind you that undoubtedly, even though unfortunately for us he no longer chooses to concertize, Glenn Gould of Canada still remains probably the most popular Canadian artist in the eyes and hearts and minds of many, many music lovers. Glenn Gould, who, brilliant as he is, has uh, decided that the idea of concertizing of constantly being before the public is something that he temperamentally seems to reject. He still records, fortunately, and he surely is a great force to this day in the entire Canadian musical scene. You've heard Mr. Gould perform various things, difficult ones. Specifically, recently, he recorded something which has never been recorded because it's fiendishly difficult, namely a transcription of for piano by, Beethoven, uh, by list of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And he did it so tastefully that he has earned the admiration, once again, not only of the public, but also of his many colleagues in music. But to hear Glenn Gould in something altogether small, which every child learns when he or she studies the piano, that ought to be a revelation. So listen to the first movement of the C major sonata by Mozart probably the best known of all Mozart sonatas, and Glenn Gould. Thank you. 
This little sonata of Mozart, which every child learns learning the piano, surely becomes a work of outstanding quality and a work of art, which it actually is, at the hands of an artist such as Glenn Gould. I say, unfortunately, he no longer concertizes in public. But those of us who love piano music and those of us who love standards and taste will do well to avail ourselves of the recordings which Glenn Gould not only has made but continues to make. While we may disagree at times with certain technicalities, by and large, here is one of the truly outstandingly gifted musicians of our time, Glenn Gould of Canada. And for the purpose of this program, let us say proudly, in the case of Canadians of Canada, even though he has surely conquered the world. It's been a short hour, and it's been a great pleasure to bring you a sampling of Canadian music and Canadian artistry. And I know of no better way to close this special tribute than by bringing you the Canadian National Anthem. On a recent trip to Europe, I revisited some of the castles and palaces for the express purpose of gathering material for broadcasts such as this, and I resolved then that I would like to bring you a series of programs, at least one to begin with now, of all of the musical doings uh, to give us an inkling of the treasures which were housed many years ago in some of these places, and some of the scenes which were so pace-setting for the cultural development of the country in question and also of music in general. This program is entitled, For Stately Occasions. Let me first take you to Vienna in spirit. The magnificent development of Vienna's musical culture prior to the climax in the triple classical constellation of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven extended over a long time, a period of more than 150 years. And it was furthered, that scene, by many talented composers who were either attracted to Vienna by the artistic taste of the Austrian emperor, or they were patronized there by him. And so the so-called Vienna School came about. When you travel today in Vienna proper, you find that you are drawn to, or at least someone tells you to be drawn to, the castle which is known as Schönbrunn. Schönbrunn actually means a beautiful fountain. Schönbrunn today is in the midst of the 13th 
district. It borders on the 12th district of the city of Vienna. When it was first built, way back in 1569, it was in the middle of the country, in the middle of nowhere, actually. It was built as a little hunting castle by Emperor Maximilian II, and then later it was destroyed, was rebuilt, but it was really the Empress Maria Theresia who in 1750 not only elaborated on the existing building by adding new portions, but who really became the guiding spirit as well. So in Schönbrunn we find ourselves the famous castle of the Emperor of Austria, and we hear a composition which was written by one of those many composers who formed the the musical entourage of the court. This one, this performance particularly, by Wagenseil, who was a contemporary, I would say, of Bach, lived well into the time of Mozart, and died seven years after Beethoven was born. movement of a symphony by Georg Christoph Wagenseil, who was one of the musicians at the court of Schönbrunn at the time of 
Empress Maria Theresia. Incidentally, the way Schönbrunn looks today, as you look at it, is exactly the way Empress Maria Theresia left it when she had to die. In fact, it was ever since her time that the Emperor would spend some time there regularly at Schönbrunn. It was also there that during the French occupation in the early 19th century, Napoleon made his headquarters at Schönbrunn. His own son died there, and incidentally, the famed and beloved Emperor Franz Josef was born at the castle of Schönbrunn and died there in 1916. Schönbrunn, one of the great palaces of Europe with a great past, and staying in Schönbrunn for another moment, as you walk through the castle, you find yourself suddenly in one of the rooms, which to a musician means a good deal. It is known as Spiegelzimmer. That's the room of mirrors. And it was there that in 1762, the Empress Maria Theresa and her family listened to two wunderkinder, two miracle children, namely Mozart, who was six years old at the time, and his sister Nano, who was nine. And it was there that they, these two children performed their first significant concert. Perhaps we ought to celebrate that event, or recreate it at least, by listening to the first movement of the first symphony by Mozart, which was written only a year after his visit to Schönbrunn. <laughs>
The Symphony Number no. One by Mozart, which was written when he was still under ten years of age, and in close proximity, as far as time was concerned, to the time of his first visit to Vienna and to Schönbrunn, the castle, and the Empress Maria Theresia. From Schönbrunn, we go to France and to Versailles. It was only recently that I revisited Versailles and tried to gather both visually and also by way of recording some of the spirit which even today pervades that great castle. The Palace of Versailles, as you well know, was an architectural pace-setting event for so many directions of architecture throughout Europe. In fact, it was the French court of Louis XIV which insisted on musical performances, and as you visit Versailles today, you can see how many different places there were for these musical performances, not only indoors and in various places of the castle, but also outdoors in various uh, portions of the great park which surrounds the castle. Louis XIV insisted on music, and he gathered together a staff of musicians, which indeed was an illustrious aggregation. I would like to have you listen first to a composition for drums only, which was written by one of the famous Philidor brothers. Now, the Philidors were an entire, entire musical dynasty at the court of France and the court of Louis XIV. There was, first of all, the André, the elder Philidor, and his brother Jacques. The march for four drums by André Danican Philidor, which was written specifically for a function at the court of Versailles.
very impressive, the atmosphere which is created by just four drums. The March for Four Drums, timpani, by Philidor, André Danican Philidor, one of the dynasty of musicians at the disposal of Louis XIV at his court in Versailles. In fact, it was one of this very family, this time Anne Philidor, one of the women of the clan, who is responsible for bringing together what is known today as the Concert Spirituel, the spiritual concert which really became the forerunner of our modern concert, public concert. But what you heard surely was for a majestic ceremonial occasion at the court. Louis XIV is known also at Versailles to have commanded that music be played at dinner time, not as background. He listened. He made sure that he listened because he had engaged as his music master at the time one of France's musicians well-liked, well-respected, Michel Richard de la Lande, who was an exact uh, contemporary of all of the early musicians of the time. He died in 1726. I'd like to bring you at least a portion of one of these symphonies for the supper of the king, Symphonie pour les soupers du roi. Now, whether or not you choose to eat while you listen to this, that's up to you. Just remember, uh, Louis XIV didn't use it as background music. <laughs>
I'm not at all sure if the king always knew what he was eating when he listened to music like this. Perhaps it was performed between courses of a great meal. At any rate, it was Louis XIV at Versailles who commanded this music by his music master, de la Lande. Symphonies for the suppers of the king. Versailles, much alive today and very often the scene of special concerts, but surely during the reign of its greatest master, Louis XIV, Versailles became the focal point for many musical as well as other cultural occasions in France. This is a program visiting in spirit some of the castles and palaces which were the scene of much of musical development in Europe, and the program is entitled For Stately Occasions.